Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Vent. This is Vent Weekly. A collaboration between Vice and Brent 2020. London Borough of Culture. Let's get a cracking. Amelia. Sabrina. Vent Weekly. So I'm a feminist, but there's something that I've been thinking about lately in terms of my feminism. So sometimes I feel like there's a separation between the fact that I'm a woman and the fact that I'm black. And I don't always see, like, feel like I'm seen in feminist spaces that are mainly white women or dominated by white women. Sabrina, do you ever feel like that as well? No, that's interesting that you say because I actually do feel similar. And sometimes mm. I feel like white women who are activists, sometimes their points are seen as more valid. Whereas, for example, coming from an Asian or a black person, sometimes they mm -hmm. kind of say, well, especially with Asian people, that maybe you're repressed by your culture. So we're kind of pushed to the side more time. But yeah, I definitely agree. And this feeling that we feel and that we have is something that's felt by a lot of people. And it's a feeling that gave birth to the term intersectionality. And that's what we're talking about for this week's episode. Intersectionality. Yeah. When you have multiple identities, uh, such as race, class, gender, sexuality. People's lives are not only shaped by one aspect of their identity or experience. Group within a group, if that makes sense. Where you're from and how you sound, or like who you have sex with, or how much money you have, all these things. Uh, which overlap and which bring with them varying forms of discrimination or prejudice. You have intersections to do with traffic. Intersections got to be about dividing something, whether it's road or people. Today we're talking to scholar and activist Dr Stephanie Davis and Vice Executive Editor Zing Singh about intersectionality. So could you both introduce yourselves? Hey, I'm Zing Singh. I'm the executive editor of Vice.com in the UK. I actually came to feminism quite late on in my life. Like I definitely only started reading and learning about feminism towards the end of my undergraduate uni degree, mainly thanks to feminist blogs on the internet. So I feel like almost the fact that you guys are way younger than I am and you're already so clued up on feminism. I think that's a great thing. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Davis. I'm a scholar activist. I'm an academic at the University of Brighton. And my research focuses on intersections of gender, race and sexuality. So um, I'm really excited to be part of this conversation today. But I feel like I definitely define myself as a black feminist now because of yeah, these reasons. Yeah, definitely. So could you just explain, um, Stephanie, like the actual definition of intersectionality, just so that everyone understands what that means? 
So intersectionality was a term coined by uh, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. It's a, it's a term which has been used to kind of just define a concept that a lot of black feminists have been talking about for years, right? So this idea that when we talk about gender, we're often, people are often talking about white women. And when we're talking about <clears> race, <throat> often talking about black men or um, men of colour. And so there's a kind of what Kimberly Crenshaw would call it intersectional failure, is that black women in particular are are kind of lost because we we don't think about we only think about gender and race in single axis so we don't think Mm -hmm. about how race and gender actually intersect um, and shape our experiences as black women and women of color so Kimberly Crenshaw was was really interested in in it structurally Um, she was looking at legal um, documents and she was looking at black women who were trying to basically uh, they went to an employment tribunal and they said because mm-hmm. they were being discriminated against at work but the law didn't understand that they were being discriminated against because there were black men yeah. who were employed and weren't experiencing discrimination and there were white women who were employed and weren't experiencing discrimination so the tribunal was like well you're not being discriminated against on gender or race but they were being discriminated against because of the intersection of gender mm-hmm. and race but the law could not understand that. And so that's where Kimberly right. Crenshaw brought, brought across intersectionality. And do you feel like that's when like the word was conceptualised? Yes, yeah, yeah. Black women and women of colour have been talking about this for a long time, right? So you've got the Compi, yeah. the Compi River, River Collective um, and they talked about needing to understand oppression is interlinked. All our oppressions are interlinked and we need to understand the experiences of women of colour and black women um, from their gender, race, sexuality, class, disability, and so on. There's no such thing as a one universal experience of being a woman. Which I feel like feminism does kind of try and group that up. Like, our experiences are just not the same. Like, we even did a podcast not too long ago about this. And, like, I, we were asked, like, if we're feminists. And I was like, yeah, I, well, I have feminist ideologies for sure. But until we can actually include the experiences of everyone, then I don't know if I'm going to class myself as a feminist or not because not every situation is black and white. It's very different for black women or for minority ethnic women as than it is for white women because they're just in a position of privilege that we just have not experienced in most cases. So that privilege just, just allows them to live like an easier, smoother life in the work, world of work, in relationships, in every, like any aspect of life, whereas for us it's a lot more difficult. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I agree. And um, why do you think that understanding this term is so important? Because um, we're speaking about feminists who are, for example, of an ethnic background. But what about maybe people who are gay and from an ethnic background? So there's different types of intersectionality. And why is that so important to understand? Well, I, I think for such a long time, we've had we've had ideas about dominant narratives. So that there's only one kind of universal experience. So... If you're gay, it's a white gay experience. If you're a woman, it's a white woman's experience. Um, mm-hmm. And just when it comes to um, politics and when it comes to our lives, we need to be thinking about things in intersectional ways. So, for example, with women in feminism, um, abortion rights are really important, and so they should be. But you find that black women tend to have had access to abortion but not had clear reproductive justice in terms of actually being experimented on in terms of uh, contraception. So, so the state actually doesn't want black women 
often times to have children. So actually, when we're thinking about feminist struggle, for lots of black women, the feminist struggle is is the right to have children and the right to have children exactly. in a safe way. Yeah, and I think the problem is as well is that there's so not so much nowadays, I think it's slowly improving. It's definitely not perfect, though, is that there's so much less of an understanding of the struggle of women of ethnic minority backgrounds, and especially black women, um, have historically faced. So, you know, um, we talked about uh, contraception. So, for instance, not a lot of people know this, but, you know, the guy who was called the father of modern gynecology, this American doctor called James Marion Sims, actually experimented on black women. And that was how he founded the scientific field through like the forcible experimentation on black women in order to find out more about the human body. And not a lot of people know about this. And I think that's one of the things that can illuminate the fact that, you know, people's struggles come from rooted in different historical experiences. But we need to start talking about these experiences more so that people understand where everyone is coming yeah. from. There's definitely a greater sense of reluctancy when it comes to discussing these things. I don't know if it's just maybe like white guilt or uh, I don't know, like just or just like a failure to accept that there are so many structures that are in place in society that ostracise a lot of people and like section everyone out. But that unwillingness to discuss things is just not going to help change the way that we view like sexuality, gender, race and how they're actually all very interconnected. Like they're not separate entities. I kind of all kind of create a boomerang effect on each other. Um, and sometimes for the negative as well. So I think those conversations are so important. Yeah, and I sometimes feel like within your own culture as well, for example, if you're Asian, maybe you're, let's say you're Asian and you're gay and your Asian people don't accept you, it's it kind of hurts more if that makes sense because they're supposed to be on your side. And when people on your side is against you, it might make you feel like, do I even have an identity? Do I even fit in anywhere? Exactly. And it makes you question yourself. So understanding this term, I think, is another important reason for people to be able to identify themselves because yes. that can really confuse some people. So I think that's definitely another importance. Yeah, I think it's important to know that there's no one universal experience. So like an, a really interesting example is I do a podcast for the BBC Sounds called United Zingdom and in one episode I met something Wong who was on RuPaul's oh Drag Race. Oh my god. Yes. Oh my god. I, yeah, I love him. <laughs> so amazing, amazing person. Yeah, and left um, soon. we were talking about coming out to Asian families because something Wong's from a Vietnamese Chinese background and yeah. I'm from a Chinese background. And he was basically saying, and he said on the sh he said this on the show as well that he had never fully come out to his parents. Yeah, yeah. And that him being on RuPaul's Drag Race was probably the first time he his parents would see him in drag. Wow. And I think a lot of people said, but how? Why? You know, like why didn't you come out to your parents? And we were talking about what a lot of people don't understand is that sometimes if you come from a conservative. Chinese background you don't have these conversations anyway with your parents yeah and coming yeah. out for someone from an Asian background looks very very different to someone who's coming out and is of you know white heritage because you see this narrative played out in Hollywood it's like you come up to your mum and dad they cry they embrace you you all attend pride together for a lot of people of Asian heritage that's probably never going to be an option when it comes to coming out so everyone's journey just looks different that's true that is so true Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. I went to uh, an elite university, being mixed race and from a state school. Everything about that world is set up to make you feel uncomfortable. The buildings are incredibly grand. There are protocols and etiquettes that if you weren't brought up in that private school um, education, you just didn't get it. And looking the way that I did, I was constantly made aware of my position as an outsider on multiple fronts. Being born and growing up in London, people being opposed to me and my parents being there, and then finding myself in a strange situation where new communities came in of me being opposed like everybody else mm -hmm. that they were there. And then thinking, this is not smart, Maria, because people were thinking that about you. So let's just cool it. Once I was on a bus with my then girlfriend and this guy was just being really creepy, basically, and asking like, oh, are you gay, are you gay, are you gay, are you gay, are you gay? And that was, an experience which was about not only being two women who were in public at night, which is a space that women aren't allowed to be in, but it was also about that man like wanting to own and seeing our love and our relationship as something that was for men and not just about us being able to exist as queer women. I guess I came to the UK when I was a teenager. So I grew up in Singapore and then at the age of 16 came here and then realised for the first time that I was in an ethnic minority. So in Singapore, mm -hmm. uh, people of Chinese origin are the dominant ethnic group. Um, mm -hmm. And then I went from being part of the majority to the minority in the UK and then started having all these experiences, you know, like microaggressions and just sometimes outright racism um, that suddenly made me think, oh, wait, I see myself as this one thing, you know, this fully realized three-dimensional human being. But it turns out when I'm out on the street, people see me as this one-dimensional person who is only really identifiable by their ethnicity. So right. for me, that was a real shock. And I think it took me a while to grapple with that, just because, you know, it would be weird for me to walk out on the street and experience like microaggressions from British people. And then knowing that I could get on a plane, fly to Singapore and then not really experience what Anything. I was experiencing in the UK. It mm -hmm. was like a parallel dimension. Do you know what I mean? I'm yeah. the same person, yeah. but it's like I'm traveling through time. What about you, Stephanie? Gosh, like, I feel like throughout my 20s, like I'm 34 now, I had like quite intense like identity crises. Like thinking, like where do I fit? So yeah, I'm I'm like mixed race, uh, black woman. Like I don't fit with white people. I sometimes I don't fit with black people. And like, how do people read me? And then also coming out in my early twenties, I was like, this just makes it so much more complicated. And I don't know. I I didn't have any like black queer community at the time, so I was like, I'm just like this weird mixed race bisexual person <laughs> um, with no community. And it was like hard not being able to see that. Um, yeah. Um, but that that's what kind of galvanised me, like, developing, like, cutie-pop communities, like, wherever I've, like, gone. I've, like, I've started, like, queer trans people of colour and, like, activist groups just to mm. build community. And then 
So actually being in those spaces with other people and being able to just, I don't know, don't, you don't even have to talk about your identity, but you can just, you're just seen, right? And, yeah. you know, I am like black and mixed race and I'm bisexual and like being black and being bisexual isn't like um, a problem. Uh, when I, no, I, I When I was younger, I thought, you know, it makes me less black to be bisexual. It's really messed up. And I think yeah. that's, that's, big, that's the problem with not having intersectional spaces right is because your queerness and your bisexuality is seen as a as a white thing but I think for me intersectionality has really helped me make sense and and find other people who have those intersectional identities. I mean when I came to the UK I didn't have a, that community at all and I found it by just mm going out a lot and going out clubbing basically that's where I found my people that's where I yeah. made friends and that's where I made some of my first queer friends and right it was amazing because I think in this in Singapore when I grew up being queer or you know having any kind of sexual orientation that was perceived as being outside the norm like the norm being get married to a man settle down have 2.4 kids etc um was seen yeah. as kind of almost like a white thing and then when I met queer people of colour while going out in London that was when I was like actually no this is totally possible these identities do not conflict at all we're having fun we're all having fun and like together and it's not you know it doesn't need to be angsty it doesn't need to be this painful process that it was when I was growing up at home feeling very alone it can be a source of real joy and community and I think that's really important because sometimes you can look at these conversations and think these are really serious academic conversations, which they are, but also there's so much kind of excitement and happiness and joy to be found in finding your people. Yeah, but do you guys feel like, like in our parents' generation, because my, my mum is from the Caribbean, even my grandma and aunties and whatever, I feel like if they had feminism or an idea of it and like just understood like intersectionality and almost like destabilised these kind of rigid structures that are kind of against us. I don't know, I think it's a hard one. Like, I think there's definitely like... Jamaica feminists um, doing the work, and I, I I do think about my nan, my like Jamaican nan. God bless her. She was I say like she would never use the term feminist. She would like wouldn't have known the language, but her life was a mm-hmm. feminist life. She was in the struggle, right? But doing like the the daily struggle of bringing up four children and um, divorcing her yeah. abusive husband, and do you know what I mean? Like Black Caribbean women are like can be really like tough and. Uh, in that feminist struggle, even though we might not call it that, you know? Stephanie, you've actually done a lot of work um, and activism in regards to, like, police violence and the deaths of, like, the public, members of public, especially, like, people of colour. Do you want to just talk a little bit more about where you, when you started that, how that experience has been generally for you? I started, gosh, quite a while ago. It was when, I don't know if you remember Troy Davis, like, a black man who was innocent but on death row, um, in America, um, and he mm-hmm. was put to death despite like huge campaigns by Amnesty, and yeah, it just it just blew my mind that someone who was innocent could be put to death. Um, and I began to then right. learn about disproportionate numbers of black people um, and people of colour in the prison system in America, but also here in the UK. Mm-hmm. And then adjacent to that, the number of black um, and brown people in the UK who have died after coming into contact with. Uh, the police so in police custody mm-hmm. it's just like an an epidemic of of black men in particular who 
are restrained and somehow die in police custody and it's always seen as an accident and no one is ever found guilty of doing anything so I could reel off a list of names um but yeah I began to work with people in Mosside in Manchester around just kind of getting a discussion going in the black community there about uh, police violence and I was at the, I was involved at the beginning of the Northern Police Monitoring Project and so it's really about oh, wow. keeping an eye on, on what police do and just hoping that by having some pressure on the police to show that community groups are watching them, that there is some accountability, right, for what they do. Um, and this is kind of where yeah, intersectionality comes up as well. With I find with a lot of mainstream activist groups, so people like XR, who love the police and who want to get the police on side and do things like um, they gave... They sent flowers to Brixton Police Station recently to thank the police for all their help during the protests. And it was such an affront to the black community in Brixton because um, Sean, yeah. Sean Rigg died in that police station. And for white middle-class activists to, you know, send flowers to the police there, to, to want to be um, in alliance with the police is just, just pure ignorance and arrogance on their part. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Yes, yeah, arrogance. Yeah, so kind of... Um, my work's been about yeah hi- trying to highlight um, these deaths in custody um, and support families whose loved ones have died in, in police custody. And just, mm. I think that's really important work because it's not... I think people often compare us to the US and say, well, you don't see people getting shot by the police in the UK, but it's, it's, people still die um, in contact with, with mm. the police. And, yeah, so I, th- I think it's just one of, it's one of those kind of atrocities um, of institutional racism in the UK that that just gets covered over. Yeah. We're all quite understanding with, like, the intersectional, like, lens and the eye. But for the people listening, could maybe Stephanie or Zing tell us how we can look in with an intersectional eye in maybe everyday life? I remember when I first learned about intersectionality and, like, applying it to, like, political issues, so, like, with the reproductive justice, um, just trying to think of trying to always question yourself with your thinking about, I'm thinking about myself in this, in relation to this political issue, but how would this affect other people? Um, so I'm always like, aware of my privilege um, and also my experiences of oppression. But always, I think, I don't know, I think it's always good to be a little bit um, questioning um, yourself, double-checking, actually, who am I thinking about when I'm thinking about this political issue? And what might I not might I not mm. understand? So it's a, it's a learning curve. But I also think just uh, making sure that you're reading different people's experiences. So say reading uh, Vice, reading different um, different authors, people from different backgrounds and different political issues, keeping abreast of all of that stuff, um, really will help you develop an intersectional kind of imagination, right? Yeah, and definitely following people on social media who come from really different backgrounds to you has really helped. You know, like. I've had to educate people so many times about, you know, even stuff that I grew up with in Singapore. I'm now like very cognizant of the fact that, you know, there are a lot of people out there who might not know stuff, but are willing to learn. And, you know, the internet, as bad as it may be sometimes, I mean, I feel like it's particularly bad at the minute because it's like 24-7 coronavirus. It is very good for learning about people's experiences because, you know, people, if they want to talk, they have a 
platform and a space to talk and you don't have to be asking people uncomfortable questions because there's always someone on the internet who is blogging about it is tweeting about it is posting about it and you can go to them to find out more about what you want to find out about rather than having to put it all on the people that you meet Yeah, but I just want to say a big thank you to Stephanie and Zing for coming on today. You guys are like actually a breath of fresh air. Like, honestly. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, really happy to be here. Thank you so much. I just felt like that conversation was entirely necessary because there's four of us and there was four different cultural backgrounds and sexualities and everything. And that is why it's so important to understand intersectionality that we literally proved it. Like we're all different, yet we all relate to it in some kind of way. And that's just the point. Like I feel like if this term is like able to be kind of like driven through education, like even in curriculum and stuff like that, like if it became more of a compulsory thing for people to understand, I feel like society generally would just like be a bit more harmonious. Especially nowadays, you can get wound up on your own identity and just thinking about me, me, me and thinking about yourself. But when we realise that there's not just one identity, there's so many others, it helps you understand others more. And I even feel like I've got to know you more, Amelia, like your views and who you are. Yeah, no, seriously, I I didn't know how much more I could know you, but like now I feel like I know even more. No, seriously. Thank you for listening to Vent Weekly. I've been Sabrina. And I've been Amelia. And thanks a lot to Stephanie and Zing for coming on. You can find more of Zing's work on vice.com and Stephanie on Twitter at StephanieDPhD. This episode was produced by the Vent production team, Jess Lawson, Amelia Gill, Moeed Majid and Ali Adlington. Vent is a collaboration between Vice and Brent London Borough of Culture 2020. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.